0: and welcome to Agape Latte. Agape Latte is a storytelling series for students that features personal stories delivered by a faculty member, staff member, or administrator at the University of Dayton to share lessons about their intersection of faith and everyday life. Presenters use story sharing to help students explore how their passions, Strengths and gifts can be used to make the world a better place. Listen with an open mind and heart to hearing God working in your life and in the lives of others. Sister Laura Lemming is a professor in the sociology department. She has spent about one and a half years of her life in India. She grew up by the ocean, so that's where she always wants to be. Her godchildren mean the world to her. She has four older brothers, so she went out and found herself some sisters. And so far, she has visited 14 countries in the Marianist
1: world. The title that, they asked me for a title for this, and I was like, oh, okay, what should I do? And so it, the title is Sister Sociologist, An Adventure Beyond All Telling. So, and I decided, I wasn't sure whether we were going to be in person or whatever, and is like, dang, I don't wanna just give a talk. So I thought I would bring 10 items to tell you how I got to be here tonight. You know, like what's important to me. My understanding is that um, you all like to hear your speakers talk about their sort of life and faith and how they put life and faith together. So um, I think for me, um, following the thread, is really important you know that there's like a thread of my life and i don't sometimes i feel like it's something that's unraveling and sometimes i feel like it's like something that's drawing but but holding on to the thread and being willing to follow the thread is part of the adventure beyond all telling in the Marianist um formulary for liturgy liturgical book um, in the, when I entered, which was a really long time ago, and I'm not even going to tell you how old I am. Um, when I entered, there was a dialogue when a person made their final vows, I think. They had a dialogue with the provincial. We, we get up in front of the church, and we profess our vows, and the provincial gives this little talkette. And it's not a homily, but it's just a, like a, a, a talk of encouragement. And one of the things that the provincial used to say, it's not anymore in the formulary is this will be an adventure beyond all telling. And I have to tell you, that is like so, so true. So I grew up as a little kid just outside of Philadelphia in the winter time, But I was really lucky because I had... Irish great-grandparents who were immigrants who came from Ireland. And they worked their whole lives in Philadelphia. But when they were able to retire, they had just enough money to buy a tiny little house. And I'm telling you, it's a tiny little house. So the width of the house is from the pole where it says maximum of 36 people to the windows. And the length of the house is from there to about here, And that was their whole house that they lived in. And my mother was their only heir. So when my parents were raising their family, this little house came to them and they had a decision to make. Do we raise our kids in the summer in the city and have them running around city streets? Or do we move to the beach every summer? and live in this tiny little house. And we, our house in Philly was not a whole lot bigger than this house, although it had two stories. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, when I tell people, oh yeah, my family had a summer home, it's not like that. We, we didn't have hot water until I was about maybe nine or 10, and we they didn't have an indoor bathroom until my older brothers were like nine or 10. And um, we never had a TV, we never had, you know, it was just, it was a little shack that we lived in at the beach, but it was like the greatest thing growing up. So I'm a beach person, and here's my beach. It has like a little, some little shells and stuff in it. And um, this lives in my office, so when I get homesick in Ohio, I love Ohio, I love Ohio. So any of you who are from Ohio, I'm not dissing on Ohio, but um, and in fact, I have told people that you know if I had to make a choice of raising a family myself on the fast-paced East Coast or come to Ohio where there's a lot of green space and people are really a whole lot nicer, that I would make that choice, but I would spend a lot more time going back and forth to the ocean. So I get really Homesick a lot for the ocean. And then Ohio people say, oh, but we have Lake Erie. And I say, no, that just proves that you don't get it. Because <laughs> it doesn't smell right, and lakes have these terrible bottoms with slime on them, whereas oceans are sandy. and But anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah, I'm... I, gotta... I gotta keep going here. Where's my. I have one piece of paper that's telling me what I'm doing. And it's still in the bag. Okay. So started my my life at the ocean. Um, I brought this for my Catholic education, for better or for worse. You know, I, I don't know how many of you, how many of you went to a Catholic grade school? Okay, a whole bunch. How many of you went to Catholic high school? Okay, pretty much the same folks. Um, so, how many of you, this is your first experience of, of Catholic education at UD? Good for you, um, brave that you came here, you know, because people think, well, what will I fit in? But I went to um, St. Alice School, SAS, this is my class, I'm not going to tell you what year it was, but this is my class's 50th year reunion, that wasn't very long ago. but. Um, and um, Catholic education, I think, is um, helpful mostly because of it giving an ethical perspective. Okay? It, it has some guidance. It was terrible in some ways. You know, I don't think Catholic schools yet have figured out how to teach about sex other than to say no. That's not a good way to teach about having a life-giving relationship with people. Um, so Catholic education is, is part of my story. Um, early on in my education, I remember I lived in a tiny house. I always wanted to play the piano. We did not have room in our house for a piano. But I could play the flute because it fit like in my room and under my bed. And um, music has meant the world to me. And I thank you so much for your music tonight. So beautiful. And I'm like really big into singer-songwriter music and and that kind of folky music, because I grew up with a lot of that. And um, that was big in Boston when I lived in Boston. But music, (laughs) and um, I play the flute. I also learned how to play the guitar so that I could sing with my girlfriends, but I don't really have a great singing voice, so I'm better on the flute. So when, when we're having a funeral or something, and they're looking for somebody in the choir, I'm like, no, I'll play the flute. <laughs> you really want me to play the flute, not to sing. Um, but I can hold my own if I have to. Um, in fact, when I came to UDU for the first time, I was the doctor of music ministry here. There had not been a director of music ministry, and I had been—I had studied liturgy, and I, so I came here, and basically, I got it organized enough to turn it over to a professional musician. So that's part of my, part of my life too. Um, really important to me getting connected to the Marianist family was the Marianist Family Retreat Center in Cape May Point, New Jersey. Now, my family's little house, this little place here, was in Cape May Point. If you can picture the state of New Jersey and how it goes like down into the little tiny point, that's Cape May Point. And I grew up there in the summers. In 1960, we had this giant hurricane that almost wiped Cape May Point off the map. And so the property values went really, really low, which allowed the Marianists to pick up this, what they called, I, I wish I could pass it around, but I'm sure I'm not allowed to do that because of COVID, um, what they called, so you later, maybe we'll, we'll move the table to the doorway and as you go by, you can see some of these things. This is the Wanamaker Cottage, okay, little cottage that the Marianist bought and turned into a retreat center. And um, I had a crazy sister, Marianist sister, because I I have four brothers, you know that, who also grew up in Cape May Point. And she was a lot more adventurous than I was. So when the Marianists came to Cape May Point, they said, we will take care of the little chapel church there in the summertime so that the priest from Cape May doesn't have to come down and do those masses too. Okay, so we had this beautiful little chapel there, um, and the Marianists were doing the liturgy there, and they wanted somebody to help with music. So my friend Grace took me in tow, and we went down and we knocked on the door of the big Marianist house, scared to death. And this brother came out in white painter shorts. And a white t-shirt covered spattered with paint and a paintbrush in his hand. He was the guy that we had seen in his black suit and tie at church on Sunday, and she volunteered to do the music. Grace, Grace at the time was 16 years old. She had stopped taking piano lessons when she was about 12. <laughs> okay. So this is, now I have been playing the flute at this point for about two and a half years, and um, I can hold, it, hold a tune, you know, on the flute. So Brother Tom is like, yeah, hey, you can do the music for us. This was back in the day of the Four Hymn Liturgy. All you did was an opening song, an offertory song, they called it that, a communion song, and a closing song. So it wasn't as developed as music is now. And um, he took us down to the chapel and showed us the organ. Now, Grace has never played an organ before. She has only played a piano. And we discover that the organ is a pump organ. So you have to pump it in order to play it. It's, It's basically like a fancy accordion. So in order to get the sound, you have to pump your feet. Grace was not coordinated enough to do that. So I played the flute and pumped, while she played, you know, I played the melody and she played chords. And it was the worst music ministry you can ever imagine. I got a lot better at that before Dayton hired me as the music director. But, um, so, but music, My experience with music and my music in prayer has convinced me that um, in order to change people's hearts, you have to touch them at that feeling level and at the right brain level. I don't think we're ever gonna convince people to be anti-racist or convince people to um, share and be willing to give up a little bit of our market mentality so that everybody can have what they need. But I think we have to move people to do that. And I think music and the arts theater is, is really, really key to that. So I'm really glad that I have persisted, continue to play my flute. I played in an orchestra in high school and um, and played a lot for Marianist stuff. So um, so the Marianists um, helped me two years after Grace and I started volunteering doing music. And then Brother Tom roped us into being kitchen maids. So we helped the brother, when there were big groups, we helped them cook. Um, that was also a fiasco, but I won't <laughs> go into that tonight. Um, ask me sometime if you wanna hear some funny stories. But um, they they decided to turn this retreat house into a retreat center for whole families. So the family and Claire Evans's family has been on family retreats at another. Did you have you did you guys ever go to Cape May? Okay, great. So so they turned this. Isn't it a cool place? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, They turned it into a place for families to make retreat. And the idea originally was for large Catholic families, because this is back in the early 70s. And you still have a lot of Catholic families um, who have like nine and 10 kids. And families with nine and 10 kids can never go on vacation. But they could go on a retreat at a big ramshackle retreat center um, for a minimal amount of money and have an amazing time. And so, um, and a couple of years after that, um, the Mariana Sisters came to the retreat center for the first time to help with the family retreats. By this time, my friend Grace has moved to Dayton, and became she was going part time to UD, but working in Dayton, and she knew the Mariana Sisters well. And uh, she wrote to me and said, Sister Gretchen's going to be at the retreat center. You have to go meet her. So I went up, and I met Sister Gretchen. And Gretchen was like, oh my gosh, you play guitar. Can you come help me with, with music? And can you um, help with the kids? Because at that time, they, they were like, remember, big Catholic families with 10, ten kids each, or eight, nine, 10 kids, six seven maybe, and um, there were like 30 kids in a a group and she and Brother Al were the only two who were adults with with all this group of kids. So I started volunteering in the family program and met the Marianists. Got to know um, the joy of the life that they lived, um, the integrated nature of the life in that um, in the Marianist family, we are sisters and brothers and priests and lay people who all share a common mission. And we have different roles that we play in it, but, but there's an equality that is really unique in the church. And, um, and I was like, these people are amazing. I had never experienced the church in Philadelphia was a, a very, and still is in some ways, um, sort of a, a rigid kind of Catholicism. And the Marianists were open, and understanding, and faithful, but um, really much more compassionate than I had experienced in Philly. I'm not saying that, it, that there weren't people who were compassionate in the church in Philly, but it was something that it was just a new way to me of being church. And I loved it. These people were faithful and they were focused and they loved Mary, Jesus's mother. And and they had immense amounts of fun. <laughs> and I was like, who would not want to do this for the rest of your life? You know, so gradually I continued in that ministry. I went, I started, um, at LaSalle University in Philadelphia. I went for two years. And after my sophomore year, I gave up my scholarship to LaSalle to join the Marianist Sisters and moved to San Antonio. I'm not sure I would recommend to anybody to do that now. I think finishing your college career is a really good thing. Um, And we know also now that people's brains aren't fully formed until they're 24, so, um, you know, it, there were some ways in which I still needed to grow up when I entered. But um, but I would not, I mean, it was what I experienced. That's call, tried to follow it, and here I am today. So um, I didn't realize, I didn't actually dress so that I would match the agape latte sign, but I thought that was kind of cool when I came in. I was like, oh my goodness, I matched the sign. Um, So the family retreat led me to profession as a Marianist. And this is probably my most prized possession, this and my ring. My ring, you can't see it, but it is imprinted with a Marianist cross on it. This ring was made from the silver of a silver rosary that was a gift to my mother when she graduated from high school. And um, when I was getting ready to make my final vows, which is when the sisters get their rings, um, I asked my family if there was any family jewelry, like was there any family silver anywhere that I could make my ring out of or was there a ring that I could use? And my mother said, no, we don't have anything, but I have this and you can have this. So I took it to a jeweler, melted it down, and he designed it with the Marianist cross on it. The Marianist cross is a cross with an M. One of our mottos is, through the mother to the son. So it has Mary on the cross, with the cross. Um, One of our favorite scripture stories is Cana with Mary and John standing by the cross. So the Marianist cross also recalls that. And when I was a young sister, um, one of the sisters who was still one of our foundresses here in the United States, who was from Spain, she um, used to say that the cross is a rounded M because it embraces the world. Marianist family embraces the world and so um, I wanted the Marianist cross on my ring and I wanted it so that the cross is facing me and the open M reaches out to people when I reach out to them so um, the Marianist cross this is our habit a lot of people say well do you wear a habit and uh, according to our the, the common the common thing that all the sisters in the world have is a silver ring and a Marianist cross. And then we wear clothing appropriate to the culture in which we serve. So our sisters who live in Korea and Japan um, wear, everybody has a uniform. Like if you if you have any job, there's a uniform that goes with it, they wear a habit. And in, in India, our sisters wear a particular color sari, but they wear a sari like Indian women do, or salar kameez. Um, so this whole Marianist thing I was like I fell in love with it and I just followed the thread followed the thread to here at UD I was here as a campus minister many years ago I was a residence hall campus minister first in Marycrest and then I was in um, when I became the director of residence hall ministry here I moved up to um Virginia Kettering because they had just built the first part of Virginia Kettering and I was the campus minister there while I supervised the graduate assistant program and I was like a really happy campus minister. Um, I didn't, I couldn't find, I, I know I have one of these campus ministry stickers but I couldn't find it so I just brought my t-shirt um, as the sample of um, being a happy campus minister. But I will say that in those years, I was doing music in the beginning, and then I was focused on residence hall ministry and started the graduate assistant program and um, was happily moving along. But I did have the experience of people kept saying to me, you know, Sister Laura, you'd make a really good priest. Did you ever want to be a priest? And initially, my answer was, well, no, I, that's not even a possibility, so I haven't even thought about it. But, but students kept saying that to me. And I also had, um, this is, we're talking the 80s now into the early 90s. And I had um, women who were juniors and seniors, like a little bit older, who would come to me sort of one at a time and say, um, you know, how do you you seem to be somebody who um, is like really Catholic, but you also seem to be somebody who really gets um, women who want to be um, authentic and to fully live their vocation and and truthfully to be feminist. Now uh, I know feminism has a bad name in some ways, um, and so I had to really start thinking about that, and I realized, you know what? I do feel called to priesthood, but that's not a possibility for me. Um, Because the church hasn't opened up that possibility yet. Um, So now what do I do? You know, like I'm a happy campus minister, but I also have this feeling of there's something more that I should be doing. And um, one of the avenues that opened up to me pretty early on, a little bit earlier than this, was around the mid-'80s, I went to a talk about, at the time, Latin America was in deep doo-doo, a lot of disarray in Latin America with um, civil wars and all kinds of things going on. Um, One of the um, brothers here invited me to be part of a delegation from UD and some other colleges to go to Columbia to study um, liberation theology for a summer and to learn the connections between North and South America and to understand that kind of thing. And that was led by um, a a Colombian sociologist. Okay, So getting the theme, sociology. Here, I wasn't really thinking about sociology. My undergrad was in theology and psychology. So I thought if I ever went back to grad school, I had already done a master's in theology. if I ever wanted to get a higher degree, it would probably be in psychology. But um, I ended up in Colombia. Was the first place that I ever saw a guana. This is, like, you know, you would call it a poncho, I guess. But the Campesinos. We were there in the summer, but we were high in the Andes, and it was really cold at night. And the people in the, in the campo wear this during the day as their coat, especially until like the sun gets warm and the sun comes over the mountain because the sun takes a long time to get over the mountain. Um, And then, you know, they take it off. But then at night, this is their blanket. And it's so practical. And, you know, so I I got my first Veruana that summer in Colombia. And I've always tried to make sure that I have one that's that's still okay. This one has not gotten moth-eaten yet. I have one that's really moth-eaten that I only wear at home. But Latin America changed my life. And I got to see the real sort of inner workings of social justice and how um, the two feet of social justice. You've ever heard Brother Ray talk? He talks about you know needing the two feet. You have to have justice, but you also have to have charity, and so um, and you can't walk without both. Like we can't make progress as a people without having those two feet. So sociology now is sort of in the back of my mind, and it wasn't sociology per se, but it was justice and this commitment to justice and. Um, That felt like, as I was struggling with, um, you know, what was I going to do about this call to priesthood that I couldn't follow and, um, and still can't, which is still a sadness in my life, but this opening of, well, you know, maybe a combination of theology and social science would make sense for you so i began eventually to look at psychology programs because i said my undergrad was in psychology and sociology was the only class i almost flunked in undergrad <laughs> i had you know my, i had it my first year and the the teacher gave us a three essay um, midterm and that was our only grade three essays so everyone's worth 33 points which means you get less than a 70, and that was a failure in those days. 60 now is the failure, but in those days, it was 70. Um, and, and she asked us a question that was completely different from the, um, what the textbook said. I mean, she's, she told us one day in class, literally one day in class, see this thing on page 171? I think the exact opposite of that. And then that was the question on the exam. So I wrote exactly what was in the book, because I was a good little first-year student, and I studied what was in the book. And um, yeah, so uh, so I almost flunked this course. I never took another sociology class. And um, I uh, so when I started looking for a, a grad degree, I was looking for psychology. But I was actually wanting to study how women together their um, call to live a full life in the church and 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 be faithful Catholics. And people said to me, well, you know, that's really sociology. So that's literally how I became a sociologist. Went to Boston College. Loved it. Um, and uh, got my PhD. I think I forgot to bring my department cup. When I left UD as a campus minister, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get a job back here, but they started the PhD program in American Catholicism, and they needed social scientists who had kind of specialized in religion. So I applied for the job, and I got a job. And now I would say, and there's a couple people in here that I've had in class, that the place where my life has led me is to a deeper understanding of interfaith relations and how in the world we really need to be faithful to whatever religion we choose to belong to, but also to be open to other people and others' experience of God. So that's what I do, that's who I am. And I don't know if we have time for questions or um you can pick my brain on other things okay jack so did they plant you no <laughs> yeah so if um if there were like another order let's say like not marioness uh, who showed up at kate may do you think that you would have connected with them as much as you did with the Marius, or do you think that it's interesting to uh, the Mariness cares and that is something that spoke to your own life yeah I think the Marianists um, spoke to my own life. I did get to know them, and I do think you could probably, you know, join. But I actually knew I, I was in a high school where there were four different orders of sisters, and I really liked a couple of those people. And I thought about joining the Mar- the, the Mercy Sisters because I thought they were really cool. They used to have these night masses at their house and. We used to go and sit on the floor and have is in days when life is a little more casual, even in the Philadelphia Archdiocese. Um, but by then, I knew the Marianists. And the thing about having women and men and lay and religious completely sells me, because I think it's a model for the church going forward. And um, the lay vocation, the importance of laity living their full vocation, which has, all, has always been part of the Marianist family. That's, that's sort of, um, so yeah. I, I don't know if some other order had been running. This is just that St. Joseph had a house in Cape May Point too, but I did get to know them and they didn't invite me to participate in their ministry. My dissertation, the, the title of it is Doing the Work, and I have to look at the subtitle because it's been so long since I did this. Doing the Work, Woman-Conscious Roman Catholic Women Strategizing Religious Agents. So, the concept that I have tried to contribute in the sociology, you have to do something original, is religious agency. How do people claim their own religious identity and live it in such a way both to transmit it to other generations, but also to transform it? And so, this whole idea of how do we use our religious agency um, is. And I was trying to understand, you know, there's a lot of Catholic women who have left the church. And I was trying to understand, why do people stay? Like, and not so much why, but how do they stay? Like, What do they do? And that's because I had these women who would come to me and say, how do you do that? And I couldn't find anything written about how you do that. So I was like, somebody's got to write it. So I, I tried to. I asked the the planners of this if it was okay for me to tell you that piece of my story. I'm not usually so forward, I guess, because a lot of people might be scandalized. So I hope you're not scandalized. I don't mean to scandalize you. I am a I am a faithful Catholic. But I think there's always room for growing the church, helping the church grow. And I think it's been very sad that we've lost a lot of people because of our inability to change some things. What else? If you don't ask me questions, I'm going to ask you questions. (laughs) Like who's from the, oh, go ahead. Was there anything in particular you found most rewarding about the work, either as a music minister or a campus minister? as a campus minister, I think the, the most rewarding thing I did was to create spaces for people to um, uh, experience different things in their lives. So Brother Dan Kelso and I um, worked together with a group called Living with Loss, which I think still exists. Sister Kathleen used to do it. I'm not sure who's doing it now, but there wasn't a, a, a grief. Support group for people, so we created that. Um, I created a circle of women who wanted to um, have other experiences of prayer. Nothing crazy or out of line, but but you know wanted to have prayer with music and and women's voices and stuff like that. So we had a group called Sacred Circle. Um, which um, uh, I thought was really good, and then mostly I think the best thing was starting the graduate assistant program to train new campus ministers. That was accompanying younger campus ministers and helping them gain the experience that they needed. That was that's probably part of my legacy. Yeah, what Caitlin, you, right? Yeah. What
0: advice would you give to students about following
1: their vocation? Um. Be open. Never say never. Uh, I meet all kinds of young sisters and brothers who started out saying, like, well, I would never do that, you know? Um, so be open. Um, think about what makes you happiest and. Know that that's what God wants for you too. And um, yeah. Um, The other thing that I always tell people is we are not playing battleship with God when we're trying to figure out our vocation. Like, it's not like God's going to blow us out of the water. We're, uh, you know, um, and there's any number of things that you can do. The thing about a vocation is something like Jack said about, well, what if you met some other people? I could probably, if I had never, if my family didn't have a house in Cape May, I never would have met the Marianists, and I probably would be a Mercy Sister now. And they're a high-powered group of people, and I really admire some of them, and I, you know, I think I could probably fit in there too. Um, I don't think there's just one thing that God has for us, like a map that we have to figure it out or we'll get blown out of the water. Um, I think there are many paths that one can take. For myself, I think partly it was like I can do this, and we need people to do this. <laughs> so why not? And I found this group of people that I think are pretty amazing. So do hang out with amazing people. That's that's yeah. okay. Thanks, y'all. I really enjoy doing this. um, We have a Marianist accompaniment team. We're a bunch of people who are eager to talk with people about vocation. So if we can, because in fact, we have a vocation retreat coming up this weekend. I don't know if you saw that Father Shaman and Mother Adele are hanging out at the galley this week um, saying to people, hey, do you want to come on the vocation retreat? So think about that. Thanks. Thanks for
0: the opportunity. Thank you for listening to our Agape Latte podcast today. Agape Latte is sponsored by Campus Ministry and the Office for Mission and Rector.